you'll find your place in your Bible with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We're going to read the first four verses again. I began this message last week. Lord willing, I will finish this part of this message this week. I also need for you to find your place at 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 because those two chapters are talking about the same thing that the first four verses of chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians are talking about. And we're going to be going back and forth between those two locations because those two locations are about the same thing. And they're going to help us put this together. It's interesting to me that the Apostle Paul comes at the end of a letter that he has written to the Corinthians addressing problems that are in the church and giving correction where correction is needed, that as he gets ready to close this letter, one of the last things he does is he reminds them about an offering that they are supposed to be receiving. The Galatians, the people in the region of Galatia, those that were in the region of Macedonia, those that are in the region of Achaia, which is where First Corinth or where Corinth is, those churches are all, for the most part, Gentile churches, and they're gathering an offering together. And the offering is going to be then taken and given to the church in Jerusalem, which is mostly a Jewish congregation. These other churches that are receiving the offering are mostly Gentile congregations. The Jerusalem church, mostly a Jewish congregation. That Jewish church, that Jerusalem church is suffering. There's a number of reasons why that would be true, but chief amongst them is that they are persecuted. They are a persecuted body of believers. They're struggling to just have the necessities of life. And so Paul is bringing together this offering and he's teaching about the importance of all of these churches, these Gentile churches, gathering this offering and he's reminding the Corinthians that you're to be a part of that offering and that it's going to be delivered to those Jerusalem Christians and it's going to create a unity amongst the body of Christ, Jew and Gentile. It's going to express your love and your compassion for them. And at some point he's going to tell them that you know, there'll be a day when you need that love and compassion in return, but we're going to create this community that's supposed to be one before the Lord, and you're going to help out your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so he's talking about an offering. This is not their regular Sunday-by-Sunday Sunday offering. This is a special offering that they're going to receive. But I want to remind you, that while this is a special offering that we're talking about specifically, the principles that he uses about this special offering can apply across any offering that's being received. And so our regular giving that we have to a local church, our missions giving, these kinds of things that we give to, these principles apply across all of the ways in which we give. And therefore, it's important for us to learn them. You say, why is it important? Because God said we're to lay up treasures in heaven. Do you know how to lay up treasures in heaven? Do you realize that, that in this world, if you have some of the means of this world, you know what to do with it? For instance, if you have some of the monetary resources of this world, you know that one of the things you do is you take it and you lay it up in a bank. 
You put it in a savings account or you put it in a checking account and you know how to access it and you know how to keep the balance on it and you understand how much you have and what the interest is, what little there is, what interest you have that's being earned in the various accounts. Or maybe you put it into some kind of a stock and that stock is for something that is supposed to multiply. You put it into the best you possibly can, wanting it to grow over a period of time. Or maybe you invest it in property, something that's appreciating in value so that you can lay it up and you can watch it grow and you can watch it multiply. I mean, we have a basic understanding of what to do with our money when it comes to taking care of it here and even multiplying it here. Do you know how to lay up treasures in heaven? Do you know how to have that which you have laid up in heaven meet you on the other side? Well, one of the ways in which you do that is by giving to the work of God and giving to the people of God. When you give to something that's eternal in its perspective and in its accomplishment, the result is that you're investing in eternity. You're laying up something that's going to multiply and it's going to be there on the other side when you get there. I'm not suggesting you need spending cash on the other side. I'm just telling you there's going to be rewards because you were a good steward of those resources and you invested them not in just what would multiply here, but you invested them in what would be of value in eternity. And so Paul comes and he says, look, we're taking up this offering that's going to be given to these poor, hurting saints in Jerusalem. And there's some principles that ought to guide the way that you give to them. And really, they are principles that ought to guide the way we give to anything that we're giving when it's related to eternity and laying up treasures in heaven. And I am going to summarize it in seven words. I spent all of the last message preaching on the one word, enthusiastically. Our giving should be done enthusiastically. Another word that you could use is the word passionately. And I'm not going to go back and preach that message to you again. There were some other things I wanted to say that I didn't get said. So go back and listen to that message and be challenged by that message. But we ought to be giving enthusiastically. Secondly, we ought to be giving systematically. I take you back to chapter 16 and verse 2. And I want you to notice what he says. On the first day of the week. Let each one of you lay something aside. The first day of the week. What is the first day of the week? It's Sunday. This is not the Sabbath. The Sabbath was yesterday. This is the first day of the week. This is the day we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the beginning of a brand new week. This is the first day of the week. The word week, the Greek word for week is sabbaton. It means a, a series of seven. It, it means a period of seven days. So every seven days on the first day of the week, he's giving them some instruction about how to systematize, to systematically be sure that they're participating in this offering. Be systematic in your approach. In other words, what he wants us to learn from the principle is that our giving is not supposed to be haphazard. It's not supposed to be sporadic. It's not supposed to be inconsistent. It's not supposed to be casual. But instead, it's supposed to be planned, and it's supposed to be regular, and it's supposed to be consistent. 
It's something that we do on a consistent, regular, first-of-the-week kind of a basis. Maybe because of the way we now do offerings online, it's not the first of the week that you give your offering, but it's on a systematic plan that you have laid out so that you are participating in laying up treasure in heaven by giving to the work of God and by giving to the people of God and to the things that God is doing of eternal value. You give systematically. You know, there's a word that I mentioned that I try to talk to all young believers about. It's the word consistent. If I could just get believers to understand that the way to maturity is consistency, they would learn to grow so much more quickly. You realize that maybe as never before, we are a people that live by emotion. We're more in touch with our mental health than we have ever been at any point that I know of in history. We're all about how we feel at any given emotion. I hear people that are employing other people who will say to me at times, we have people who call in and just don't show up to work because they're just tired today. Or they're just overly stressed out on this particular day. Or their emotions are not where they want them to be on this given day. And there is something to be said about emotion, and there's something to be said about mental health. All of those things have value and importance. I'm not discounting them in any way. But do you realize that the reason you don't rise in the place of business to the next level is because you can't be trusted and you aren't consistent? And as it is in the business world, as it is in the day-to-day world, as it is in the educational world, as it is in the church world, you just have to show up. You have to be there. You have to be, be, be counted on. You have to be consistent. You don't, if you're sick, you stay away. If there's something medically wrong, you stay away. You, you have explanation. You're running a fever. You have some illness that's potentially contagious. Don't come. We don't want you. But consistency, even when it comes to church, I'm here I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. The consistency of it. Why? Because consistency builds maturity. Especially in spiritual things, it builds maturity. Consistency builds that kind of maturity in every part of your life. It helps you to grow up, to be an adult. We have too many people that are adults that still want to be kids. They've never learned anything about consistency and faithfulness and dependability. And that you don't listen to your emotions all the time. And you don't give in to all of the things that you don't feel good about at any given moment. But you get up and you go on anyway. I remember one preacher used to say, you don't call in sick, you crawl in sick. I'm not suggesting that if you've got something contagious or you've got a fever or something the doctor has diagnosed... That's what you should do. I'm just telling you that there's a lack of that kind of consistency. Oh, we're in touch with how we feel. But do you realize that if you live by your emotions, that you will live your life on a roller coaster? I find people all the time, they're always shopping to find something that's missing in their lives. They're always shopping for some religious teacher that's going to give them a new high, that brings them to a new place in their life. And they never stop to realize that right there in front of them is the blessing of God, but they can't see it because they can't get the same emotional high. It's like taking drugs. 
You take drugs for a little while, and soon you get used to it, and you got to have more drugs to get a little higher and a little more drugs to get higher until you're hooked in a way that it takes some kind of a, a professional to be able to help you to come off of those drugs. And sometimes you never get off of them because you're just looking for that high. i got to have that new high. i got to have that feeling. Hey, look, consistency is the way to maturity in spite of how you're feeling. You just show up and you do what's right because it's right to do. Did you hear that? You just show up and you do what's right because it's right to do. Now, I've gone to preaching here. <laughs> Systematically, we're supposed to give. Well, I don't feel like it this week. Or, you know, I've got something else that's going on and I'm just so stressed out. It doesn't matter. Consistency, system, systematically, we give. Do you realize that God built this into his people in the Old Testament? It was called the tithe. The tithe. And did you realize that there was more than one tithe that was given in the Old Testament? There were actually three tithes. And I know that sounds funny. Isn't that three-tenths and not one-tenths? Yeah, I understand. But you've got to understand what's going on here. That first tenth was given for the purpose of sustaining the priests and the Levites who took care of the temple and took care of the worship of God. That second tenth was given for the festivals and for the feasts that the people enjoyed when they came together at those celebratory times. And that third that was given every third year, that third tenth that was given every third year was a tenth that was given to take care of the poor. It was like a benevolence fund, if you will, to be able to take care of the, of the poor so that when they reaped their harvest, when they brought in their profit, they understood, I'm going to give back this much to God. And it's not a matter of how I feel about it. It's the matter of what God has commanded me to do. Actually, if you, if you divide that out, that works out to being approximately 23% of their income they gave back to God every year. About 23% of their income they gave back to God every year. And it was a part of the law. Aren't you thankful we're not under the law? But God was building into them something that was systematic, something that was regular, something that was planned, something that was consistent. It wasn't haphazard or sporadic or inconsistent or casual. We used to have people, we passed the offering plate and that was when they felt motivated to give. And they didn't give any other time. So maybe giving online is something that's been a positive because you get consistent in the way you give, at least if you stop and you think about it and you consider that you're doing this with all of your heart enthusiastically because you believe in what God is doing in his church and through his church and in this world. You believe it and you get consistent systematically. Thirdly, our giving should be done individually. Everybody should be involved. I take you back to verse 2. He says, on the first day of the week, let how many? Each one of you lay something aside. That means there's no exclusion. Everybody in the church, in Achaia, in Galatia, in Macedonia, everybody is supposed to be participating in this offering. I would assume from the youngest member to the oldest member, they were all seeking to give to this offering. And individually, everybody was a part. No one was excluded from the responsibility of giving. And no one is excluded from the responsibility of giving to God and to God's work and to God's people. 
say, well, I've got an exp- a, a special exclusionary uh, part of the contract that I made with God. No, you didn't. You, you say, it's, it's in the fine print down at the bottom. You know that radio commercial where at the end of the commercial they talk so fast you have no idea what they said, but they've got to be able to say it in order to meet the legal requirements in case they get sued? Do you all know what I'm talking about? You say, well, it was down there. It was, it was at the end of the radio broadcast. That's, that's when I said it. I said it really quick that, that I was going to be excluded. Nobody is excluded. How can you ever be excluded when God has given us all that he's given to us? When we've been the recipients of this incredible, magnificent, amazing grace, how is it that we would be unwilling to give back to God and any one of us not participate in laying up treasures in heaven. People sometimes have been to me over the years and they say, well, pastor, I just don't have enough to be able to give. And I have rarely ever said this. I don't mean to make it sound like I say this all the time. I have said it maybe once or twice to the person who said it because I felt the comfort level to be able to say something and I'll look at them and say something to the effect or I will think it when they say that. You don't, listen, I don't have enough to give the reason you don't have enough to give is because you don't give. Do you, you understand that principle? Look back with me. I told you to keep a place back here in chapter 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians. And look back here with me for a moment at chapter 9 and look at verses 6, 7, and 8. Listen to what he says. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. You understand what he's saying, don't you? If you put one seed in the ground, well, you're going to get a harvest, but it's not going to be a lot. If you put a thousand seeds in the ground, well, you're going to get a lot more harvest, correct? Anybody here that's a farmer? Anybody here that plants a garden? Verse, verse 7, so let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now pay attention. And God is able to make all grace abound towards you that you always, having all sufficient, hear all the alls, always, having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every, every good work. You hear what he says? You want to invite God into your finance. You don't want to push him out. And how do you invite God into your finances? You invite God into your finances by giving you, you, have, you, you may think you don't have enough to give. The reality is you ought to find a way to give and find out what God can do in response. A lot of people are living below where God would have them to live because they've not been one of those who's individually involved. I mean, even down to teaching this principle to our children. If your children get, if your children get an allowance for the work that they do around the house, we ought to be teaching our children to give out of their allowance back to God out of that allowance. Now, every kid's going to object. When my parents did this with me as a kid, I wasn't a believer at that point in my life, and I didn't understand the things that I understand today, and I didn't know that by giving I was inviting God in to multiply what remained and to bless what remained. I didn't understand that. I didn't understand that Planting a little gives me a little harvest, and planting a lot gives me a lot bigger harvest. I didn't understand that God wants to give me the grace so that I can sow bountifully, but, but I've got to start somewhere. I didn't understand that. And so they'd say, David, you're going to have us. Well, my mother, she'd say, Davy, 
You're not allowed to use that name. That's a family name. And if you use that name, don't be surprised if I use your family name. Davy, you got to take 10% of that and you got to give it back to God on Sunday. Oh, Mom, I don't want to do that. Mom, I don't want to do that. Don't you understand, Mom? That's, this is my money. I earned this money. Yeah, Dave, you got to learn this. You got to learn this early. You got to learn this early. And can I tell you something? Mary and I have proven God again and again and again and again. If I told you how God has provided for us through the course of of 45 years of ministry, you would say only God could do something like that. I don't know if you know this or not, preachers aren't rich. Well, at least this preacher isn't rich. I've lived, I've owned one house in my entire lifetime. One house, I'm 66, I've owned one house in my entire lifetime. I've rented every other house or lived in the parsonage of the church for seven years before I acquired my own house. I, we're not rich in the sense of this world, but we have watched God provide again and again and again and again in ways that we never said anything publicly that God provided, and I believe it's because we have faithfully given back to God and beyond even the minimum amount, given back to God. Because if you sow, if you sow sparingly, you reap how? Sparingly. If you sow bountifully, you reap how? You say, but pastor, I've only got a sparing amount to sow. Sow the sparing amount and let God bless you. And then there's going to be more to sow. And it starts growing. And before you know it, you say, that sounds like the preachers that are all about the health and wealth thing. <laughs> that has absolutely nothing to do with it. It has everything to do with sowing and reaping. The principle of sowing and reaping. And Paul says, look, you're supposed to be giving individually. Nobody's to be left out. Don't we love to claim Philippians 4.19? But my God shall supply all your need, not your wants, not your greed. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory. Are you giving to God? Are you faithful to giving to God? Well, no, but he said he would supply all my needs. Hey, this is where we read the Bible and make it say what we want it to say. Have you read the five verses before it? Do you know what they're about? Do you know what Paul is talking about? He's talking about an offering that the church sent to him in order to sustain his ministry and to enable him to keep going in the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says, because, in essence, this is what he says, because you have given, you have sown into my life and into the gospel and into the work of God, the result is that your God will supply all of your need according to his riches in glory. Oh, that changes the meaning of the verse altogether. By the way, there's a number of verses that need to be contextualized like that. Our giving should be done individually. Number four, our giving should be done proportionately. You notice again what he says in verse two. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay aside something storing up as he may prosper. Proportionately. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. Well, I'm going to take a moment. 
Go back with me again to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This is the same offering he's talking about just a little bit later in time. Notice what he says beginning in verse 1 of chapter 8. He says, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia that in a great trial of affliction... Did you hear this? The churches in Macedonia are participating in this offering, but it's out of a great trial of affliction. The abundance of their joy and their deep poverty, poverty, their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing. We could go on reading. You say, how do you give? You say, I understand giving out of my ability. How do you give when you don't have the ability to give? That's what we call a faith promise. You heard us talk about faith promise offerings? It's when you trust God to provide resources that you don't presently have with the promise that you're going to give it back to God. And you'll be surprised how often God will make you a channel of his resources as long as you don't dam up the channel. God's not asking you to give something you don't have at all. He's asking you to give out of what you do have. And he's asking you to give proportionately according to what you have. Number five, our giving should be done quietly. Another word for that is privately. If you look back at chapter 16, verse 2, on the first day of the week, let each one of you, here it is, lay something aside. The old King James says, lay by you in store. Lay by you in store. Well, what's he talking about? Lay something aside. Well, first of all, he's not just telling you to take it and keep it at your house and hold it until the time comes for you to give it. He's telling you to bring it to the church and to put it into the work of the church. Lay by you in store. We know that because of the, a little bit later in this same passage, he says, when I come, I don't want there to be any collections. I want the collection to have already taken place. In other words, you're not supposed to bring it on that day and everybody come down to the church and bring your collection. So they're bringing these collections. What does he mean? It's an idiom. It's an idiom that refers to the, this matter of quietly or privately. We're not supposed to be announcing it, what we're giving. Now, I'm going to get really close to home, so are you with me? All of you social media people like me, stay with me. Come on now. Stay with me. You do it quietly and you do it privately. You know the story that Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 6 in that great sermon about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees? And he says, when you give, don't sound the trumpet. They'd sound the trumpet and people would gather around. And he says, when you do your charitable giving... He says, you don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. You don't, da, 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 da. everybody gather around, watch this. Hey, I didn't bring it with me, but I'll do it this way. This is my phone. Watch me. Oh, that's not good. Let's get it this way. <laughs> and then put it on social media. Or call the local TV station. Come on down. Let us tell you how many shoeboxes. I'm talking about not for us. Let us announce to the whole community how many shoeboxes we took up that are going to go to boys and girls. 
Jesus says, you have your reward. It's the one who says, I'm going to give when his left hand doesn't know what his right hand is doing. When you lay aside something, when you're doing it quietly and you're doing it privately, not for the, oh, I like that. Oh, that's so wonderful. Look at all those hearts I got. Look at all those praises I got. Look at all the attention. I mean, everybody in the city knows we gave more than everybody else gave. Am I close to home yet? You say, what does it mean your left hand not knowing what your right hand does? Well, for people in my age bracket, that's a whole lot easier than it used to be when I was younger. (laughs) But one author says the two hands almost always act in unison. By the way, there's several explanations, all of them meaning quietly or privately, but I like this one best. The two hands almost always act in unison. Together they often lift, carry, and catch things. They are together in work and in play. They can therefore be viewed as being thoroughly acquainted with each other. Whatever the one does, the other knows. Symbolically speaking, therefore, for the left hand not to know what the right hand is doing means a total lack of acquaintance or utter ignorance. And since the hands are part of the person, the expression probably refers to the fact that as much as possible, a person must keep his voluntary contribution a secret, not only to others, but even to himself. That is, he should, not, or he should forget about it instead of saying in his heart, what a good man or woman, what a good boy or girl I am. Do you all know how much I gave last year? Well, let me just let you in on a few things, okay? Is my sweater straightened back out? (laughs) We ought to give privately. We ought to give privately. Number six, our giving should be done sacrificially. Again, back in chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians, he talks about the generous gift. Verses 5 and 6, he talks about the generous gift. He talks about a matter of generosity. He talks about sows bountifully. There's a sacrificial aspect to our giving. It means doing without something that maybe we wanted in order to be able to give to God so that God's work can advance and God's people can be cared for. Jesus gives us an example of that very thing. In Mark chapter 12, I spoke last week at Tri-State Bible College, and they assigned me Mark chapter 12 as the text from which I was to speak. And I didn't get to this particular portion, but at the end of Mark chapter 12 is the little widow. And she comes into the court of the women. In the court of the women, there's 13 of these bell-shaped, trumpet-looking things that you throw your offering in, and it goes down into a a place that catches it and it stays there, it's safe. And the rich people would come into the court of the women, these metal-shaped, bell-shaped, trumpet-looking things. They'd come in and, and they'd step over and they, it'd be like you and me taking our quarters and our nickels and our dimes and our pennies. We want mostly quarters, they make more noise. Dimes and pennies don't make as much. Nickels make a little bit more noise. But you go over and you pour it in so that everybody can hear and everybody stops and says, wow. What an offering. Can you hear that? (laughs) Jesus has got the disciples with him. He's watching the offering. Jesus watches how we give. 
He's watching the offering. And comes into this women of the court, court of the women, I should say, with these 13 bell-shaped looking things where the offerings were given. And she is a widow and she walks over. She has two little mites. Not mice. Two little mites. I, I, I have one of those at my house. It, it's smaller than I can make my fingers like this. You understand that a mite was the equivalent of one one hundred and twenty eighth of a denarius. A denarius was a day's pay. Was a, was a day's pay. It's equivalent to one one hundred and twenty eighth of a denarius. If you want to break it down further, in an eight hour workday, one lepton—that's one of those little mites—would be worth less than four minutes' wages. She took the last two mites she had. And she put them in the offering. And Jesus looks at his disciples and says what? She has given more than all the rich people who've been drawing attention to themselves by the way that they give. I guess you know if you make $1,000 to give $100, I mean, that's a significant thing. If you make $10,000 and you give $1,000, that's... A, a significant thing, but you got a lot more left over. And if you make $100,000 and you give $10,000, well, I mean, you still got a lot more than that left over. So which one has it easier? Giving $100, giving $1,000, giving $10,000? Well, the question isn't what you put in. The question is, what do you have left over? Did you do it sacrificially as God intends for us to do it sacrificially and finally. Our giving should be done compassionately. It should be done compassionately. And I take you back to chapter 16, down to verse 3. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. They were giving out of a heart of compassion for their brothers and sisters in Christ who were in need. Can I tell you that they were giving because they wanted to be a part of the greater purpose and the greater plan of God. They were giving because they cared. They cared about the things of God and the work of God and the people of God. They cared about spreading the gospel, and they cared about helping fellow believers in need, and they cared about the work of the church, and I can go on like that. They cared. Do you think God cares that we've been feeding people for the last 20-plus years every week, many of them putting clothes on their backs? Do you think God cares that those children take home with them a backpack full of clothes, or excuse me, a backpack full of, 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 of food to sustain them from Friday until Monday? Do you think God cares? Do you think God cares that we are working through the city mission to help those who are broken and who need the, the love of Jesus to be changed to be transformed by the power of the gospel. Do you think God cares about those things? Do you think God cares about those that are hearing the gospel on the other side of the earth through a preacher that we've helped to be there and partnered with to be there to represent us proclaiming the gospel? Do you think God cares down there on Thursdays 
when those kids from that community gather in there and they get loved on and they get fed and they get treated to the the truths of the word of God? Do you think God cares that we're planting a church on 8th Avenue? Some people, the only people they care about is themselves. It's all about me. Life is all about me. You don't think that? You know, just look at social media. It's all about me. It's all about me. Here's an old song that I've heard sung. I wish we could sing it again. I wish I could hear it sung again. But the chorus goes like this. Thank you for giving to the Lord. I'm a life that was changed. Thank you for giving to the Lord. I am so glad you gave. Do you think those couples whose marriages are saved are thankful for the counseling we've provided to them? Do you think those who have been growing in their faith and getting more stable in their walk with God are grateful that we have given so that there can be pastors and teachers to lead them and to teach them? Do you think that God cares? And we ought to have compassion for those who are hurting in the hospitals and we show up when their lives are broken and we offer them the comfort of God and the peace of God. Do you think God cares about those things? And the answer is absolutely. And these people knew God cared about those saints in Jerusalem and they gave with compassion in their hearts, not for themselves. They gave with compassion in their hearts for others. And how about those who desperately need to hear the gospel? Do you think God cares about them? And do you think we as a church ought to be supported by the people of God so that we can take this message and we can spread it as effectively as we can to spread the message throughout this tri-state and beyond this tri-state to a hundred-mile radius and beyond that hundred-mile radius to the end of the earth? Do you think God cares about that? By the way, I'm preaching to the choir here because y'all know God cares. I'm just preaching with all of my heart at this moment to make sure we're all on the same team. We're all contributing together for the same cause because we know where God's care is. And we go out and we give, and one day we'll walk the streets of heaven and somebody will say, thank you for giving to the Lord. I'm a life that was changed. Thank you for giving to the Lord. I'm so glad you gave because you helped us to hear and be helped in ways that we would not have heard or been helped, but you helped by making sure that we felt loved by the love of Jesus. Did you get those six additional words? Did you get those six additional words? Did you write them down? I've got about four more. (laughs) I'm not going to give to you. I want you to go back with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. You say, what does this have to do with this season of the year? I want you to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 10. And then we're going to move back to chapter 8 again. Notice what it has to do with this season of the year. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food... Who is the supplier of all that we need? It's God. Bread for food. Supply and multiply the seed you have kept in your pocket. Is that what it says? The seed you have sown 
and increase the fruits of your righteousness. While you are enriched in everything for all liberality, God enriches you so that you can damn it up and, and you can keep it for yourself? No, so that you can be even more liberal in your giving. That's not about your theology. That's about your giving. For all liberality, which causes, which causes, what's the word? Thanksgiving through us to God. For the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many. Here it is. Here it is. Thanksgivings to God. You say, why do I give? I give because I care about people and I want them to know what I know. I want them to have the truth that I have. I want them to be set free as I've been set free. I want them to be forgiven by the forgiveness that I know in my life. I want them to have what I have, the eternal life that I presently possess. But do you know what happens when that occurs? It causes thanksgiving. Have you stopped giving thanks to God for what you enjoy? Have you stopped? Look over at verse 15, chapter 9, verse 15. Paul ends this particular section about the offering. He says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Oh. When I stop and I consider where I was headed without Jesus, where I would have been in eternity forever had somebody not reached out to me with the love of Christ and given me the gospel and told me how to be saved. When I think about how Jesus has changed my life, and by the way, he's still changing my life, and i got a long way to go. When I think about all the things that God has given to me and all the blessings he's, been, he's bestowed on me, I can't help but stop and say, thank you, God, for your indescribable gift. And it causes thanksgiving to go back to God over and over and over again. So what am I supposed to do, preacher? Well, you're supposed to come and leave your wallets and your credit cards at the altar. <laughs> All your cash at the altar. I ask you to look now at 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Remember, this is all about the same offering. Verse 3, chapter 8, verse 3. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, that's these Macedonians, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. In other words, they were saying, look, I know, we're, I know we, we could probably use this ourselves, but we've given it. We want you to take it, Paul. Paul said, well, you need this more than they. No, 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 no. We want to give it for the ministering to the saints. Verse 5. And not only as we had hoped, oh, wait, wait, wait a minute. Giving doesn't start with our wallet, our checking account, or those greenbacks in our billfold. And not only as we had hoped, but they first, oh, wait a minute, wait, wait a minute. That they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. They first gave themselves to the Lord. 
our greatest problem in the church today. And I'm talking, not talking just about our church, the church in general. The greatest problem when it relates to this matter of stewardship, the greatest problem today isn't a money or a cash flow problem. The greatest problem in the church today is we've never stepped into the offering plate ourselves and said, Lord, here I am. Use me. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask you to get into the offering plate today. You say, Pastor, those things are only about this big around, and they're made out of that soft metal. They aren't going to hold my weight. Yeah. There's a great old big offering plate right down here at this altar. Huge. Can you see it? Do y'all see it? Do y'all see the offering plate right down here? It's right over here. All across here, it's right over here. Right over here. Do do y'all see it? Don't go get a straight jacket for me. You see it? We're going to come down here and we're going to say, Lord, I put myself in the offering plate first. And I'm going to begin by saying, thank you, Lord, for your indescribable gift of yourself for me.